welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by The Ocean Race. My guest this week is Abby Ela, somebody who finds herself on a lot of teams in the position of boat captain. She's done three campaigns with The Ocean Race, Amersports 2, Team SCA, and most recently Team Brunel. And if you are going to take a boat on a 45,000-mile journey around the world, it does need to be maintained in tip-top condition. So what's it like having that responsibility fall on your shoulders? Not many people have done the ocean race more than once. Either once was enough, or they never got the opportunity to join another team and prove their worth on the water. Abby Ela has. She's done the race three times, and she's looking to do it again. She'll be bringing with her the experience that comes from three laps of the planet, not only as a sailor and a grinder, a trimmer and sail manager, but as a three-time boat captain, someone who's capable of keeping the equipment working in the worst conditions. She's twice been a part as all-female teams, helping to break the image of offshore sailing as a male-only profession. And most recently, she did the race with Team Brunel and came agonisingly close to overall victory. Abby, thank you very much for joining me. No, thanks for having me here. Um, so I think that's kind of where I want to start, really, is that you've you've done quite a bit with the Ocean Race. 2001 with Amersports 2 and then all the way up to the most recent edition, 2017-18. You know, that's Whitbread 60s to VO 65s. So you're lining up for another one, you know, with things like the, you know, the Amoka, foiling assisting technology. You've seen the race change an awful lot over that time and you've stayed with it and you're still bringing speed and skills to many teams with the knowledge and the techniques that keep evolving. What is it that remains fundamental to do as a sailor in order to succeed in this race? Um, big question. I guess the bottom line is it's sailing. You know, it's sailing whether it's... a Volvo 60 or a 65 or even the iMocha and I, mean, I think that was the, a bit of a reality check when I went to uh, join 11th hour for a, a trip back across the Atlantic recently it was um I was like oh my god this thing looks like a spaceship and um, you know I'm not quite sure I don't know anything about the the setup of the boats and yet when you step on it's it really is it's the fundamentals remain the same it's you know trimming sails. It's driving a boat. It's making a boat go fast. It, the reality is, it's the the bottom line. And so aside from that, sailing skills, the team. I mean that never changes, and that the need to have a really good team. Um, and it, you know it doesn't take long to realise thirty days at sea, crunched into a little box with all these people. That if if you're not all on the same page and you're not all you know dedicated to the same end goal then things start to unravel so I think that's the key fundamentals is yeah sailing skills remain the same whatever the the boat and your team is on especially on an offshore race is is key and what about your specialist subject so so you know boat captain um obviously there's the shore crew that we we understand you know they're there they're looking after the boat and then you're the person who steps on board and kind of condenses all that knowledge into one. How how much work is it to um, keep abreast with all the different technology changes and everything? I mean, the, the VO65 must have taken some different skills to keep running than, say, the Whitbread 60. 
Yes and no. I mean, the fact that the 65 was a one design meant that you were pretty limited in the parts. So, you know, everybody's got the same engine on board. Everyone's got the same uh, rope, locks, fittings. So it was kind of very much a black and white project in terms of the parts and, uh, you know, setting up your spares. I guess it for any for any passageway you're going offshore and you're obviously paying that balance of weight versus being able to fix stuff when it when it breaks because you've got to get across that finish line um it, it is just knowing your boat inside out you know knowing where the weak points are knowing what aspects are going to stop you from crossing the line you know what's going to be a show breaker um and then it's kind of like well do we can we double up you know could we use that part in that uh you know just to try and save weight because ultimately that's that's the where the the, the gain is made is is in weight you know similar to a formula one car so it's just that constant trying to think outside the box what can we what can we do without and um and yeah and working perhaps with the the nav or you know your performance guy on board or just to, to try and work out what's going to be the best things to have and I guess, you know, that hasn't changed from whether it was a Volvo 60 or the 65, but I'd definitely say it became a little more, um, yeah, there was less sort of, uh, less opportunity to sort of diverge from from the one, des one design setup. And, and what kind of boat captain are you? Because, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, when you get a ride in your friend's car and you close the door a little bit too forcefully and they get a bit grumpy, you know, you do you see people kind of mistreating equipment and you think, oh, I'm going to have to fix that. And when I, you know, when I step off watch, this is not going to be pleasant. Or do you kind of, eh, we're all good? No, definitely. I mean, I think I take a lot of pride in what I do. And uh, yeah, I, I think this, you know, prevention is better than cure isn't it and trying to foresee all of the potentials and I think that's one of the the key elements of being a boat captain is that you you're staying on top of the boat and that involves you know daily schedule for checking stuff then you've got the weekly schedule which might just be a little more in depth um you know rig checks whenever you can to get someone up the mast it's um it's just really trying to stay on top of everything and to prevent it before it go turns into a, a major and that might be chafe on ropes it might be a, a slight weep in a hydraulic system you know it can be anything that could suddenly turn into a full major so or chafe on a sail so yeah it, it really is about keeping on top of it but yeah I don't suffer people very well that don't treat the gear <laughs> the gear right and I, I think any seasoned offshore sailor you know has respect for for the gear because you've got to understand that you know you can't let that sort of thing happen you're at sea for 20 30 days sometimes so you know looking after your equipment is you know a key element so so what is the perfect leg for you then is it a case where all the equipment works it works absolutely perfectly or is there a sort of slight thrill in something breaking and it all coming down to you and with only your your brains and a bit of chewing gum and as little you know a coat hook you were able to sort of fix the fix the winch or whatever you know what do you prefer that macgyver moment or just an easy day definitely an easy day <laughs> i can think back to amos sports and being in the southern ocean and i have memories of our our gas burner had failed 
And so obviously that's a lifeline in terms of being able to heat up water, being able to heat up food. And we had some Coke cans on board in case people got seasick and you would give them, uh, you know, flat Coke to settle their stomach. And we were rigging up trying to make a burner out of a Coke can. And it, I mean, I can't remember if we ever succeeded, but it was like we just kept on going, trying to, and it was a former guy of a moment. There was like, you know, stuff coming out of bags and chewing them or uh, Coke cans. So, but it was horrible. I mean, it was horrible for the whole crew, a horrible feeling for yourself that you could see them suffering as a result of not being able to fix it. So I definitely hands down go for the everything works perfectly <laughs> nothing to fix <laughs> do you have to do you have to be really careful with the spares that you bring on for something like that then because you were mentioning weight before and i can imagine you're sort of thinking yeah another another winch drum would be good and yeah a bit of, you know another hydraulic ram i mean do you, do you ever sort of have those difficult choices yeah i mean definitely all the time and it, it, it i remember it being a battle with especially I think with Kyle who Kyle Langford had come from the cup where of course weight is you know of the essence down to the wire and um, there'd be this battle between me understanding that we've got to be able to fix stuff at sea versus Kyle be like no we don't need that no you don't you'll be fine you'll be fine <laughs> and um, yeah and I think it it was a you know we managed to find that middle ground but I think certainly for Carl to understand, you know, having not spent that time at sea and the things that can go wrong and, and yeah, just having that feeling of there's nothing worse than being out there and not having the gear to fix stuff. And, and, you, and ultimately you don't know what's going to break. You don't know if anything is going to break at all. So it's really, like I said before about just having that, well, can we use that, but can we use that for sail fixing and can we use it for boat building? You know, it's just like that constant, trying to bring the the overall weight of the kit down but finding that double <laughs> double use for everything um you mentioned Carl Langford and that that's that's sparked my interest on this one because I've spoken to a Bauer Becking who um talks about a lot of things including the last edition and then also I got a chance to talk to Anja Mareg van Boxel the the coach, sports psychologist, maybe um, from Team Brunel, and somebody who yourself and uh, Bauer have both described as you know your secret weapon. Um, somebody who I think you know the whole team has kind of said played a major part. But um, and I, and I want to get your thoughts on on what she did from somebody who was kind of one of her, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, one of her lab rats, and I do mean that nicely. Um, but what was it like in terms of those two worlds coming together in terms of the Olympic America's Cup sailors, some of the best in the world, and the offshore world that you're a part of with thousands and thousands of miles and all sorts of you know weather-hardened skills, who felt more like a fish out of water who felt more like, Oh, I'm going to have to learn from the other group or, or was it just a good balance? Definitely not a fish out of water, but it was a massive collision of two worlds <laughs> and maybe collision is not the right word, but it was a very interesting dynamic. I mean, you imagine, um, yeah, Carl Langford, Pete Burling and Carla, Carla human had all come from America's cup. 
and is you know it comes down to such a you know a percentile of weight of aero you know that level of degree that they are chasing that was apparent from day one and it was it was a real sort of breath of fresh air in terms of you know Kyle will be looking at every halyard and be like well you know that's that's like a serious aero issue you know and we'd be trying to you know and the things that we would just I would say take for granted in terms of well that's there you know we we wouldn't normally move that or it certainly opened your mind to to different um yeah being a lot more aware of and trying to find that that extra performance even if it was just a, a very slim percentile of 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 performance you know these guys were trying to find it and I think that was really 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 refreshing and and something that perhaps i hadn't been exposed to in offshore sailing before because it's just a bit more robust a bit more clunky a bit more you know we're just gonna make it to the finish line type attitude whereas this was really no come on we're gonna we're gonna look for everything that we can find in this boat there's one incident which perhaps explains the best sort of collision of ideas and we were in the southern ocean and we needed to jibe. I think it was one of these, you know, where we were jibing off the ice gate. Um, and usually with the mainsail and the where the runners intercept the, the main, you would go to either full main or three reefs to prevent the battens from landing against the runner during the jibe. This is a heavy air jibe, so the main's gonna come across super fast. And I think we were at two reefs, so we either had to, you know, come down or go up to be safe on the main. I, I can see the argument that's about to be had here. <laughs> Pete was wanting to go up and Bao was wanting to come down. <laughs> Pete, for obvious reasons, wanted to not go to three reefs because that just felt like we were too much like molly cottying it. And Bao was like, there's no way we're going to full main and then we risk all the, all the battens. So um, I can remember having this, <laughs> you can imagine like a comedy, comedy series of we're going up, we're going down, we're going up, we're going down. <laughs> and um, I think in the end, I think, I think how I gave in and I think we went full main and we did it. But um, it was, a, I think, um, a very sort of a classic of, you know, the type of wanting to push the boat, but Bauer, you know, understanding you can't muck up the main. I mean, you just look at Axo, who who did have a, a bad jibe, damaged the battens, you know, and lost a significant amount of time trying to fix it. And, you know, Bauer has that experience. And it was, it was just a, a great, a great example of the two worlds intersecting. <laughs> because Anya Mareg talks about, um, she talked to me about a, a moment and she didn't give too many specifics, but it was along the same lines of what you were talking about, where um, Pete Burling was driving right on the edge, driving really fast, felt really good, getting great numbers out of the boat and then had a moment where just slightly lost control. And I don't think anything untoward happened. Like I say, she didn't go into specifics, but had a moment's realisation, oh, that would have been really bad if that would have happened and realised that actually the advice that was coming from uh, the more sort of senior hands, if we if we like, um, of, you know, push it, but don't go too close to the red line, because if it if it goes wrong, it'll go wrong pretty, pretty uh, painfully. He kind of went, OK, now now I sort of get that. 
did you see a did you see that kind of like young enthusiasm sort of coming down to the sort of uh, listening a bit more to the experienced hands or was it uh, i'm just trying to work out whether there was what was the moment where the team went you know what with the people with this experience and with the people with this experience if we work together like this wow look how fast we can be and you were and it did and it was fantastic what what was that little gear change yeah i i'm i'm going to say it not so much about the understanding of the two parties if you want to call it that and i would say that would just be like a a blend it was just you know it started out pretty you know the we want to try things like this and you know the older more experienced be like well, okay well let's you know we've done it like this before you know this has worked that hasn't worked but you know let's let's try it um so i think it was just a gradual sort of blend over time there wasn't that sort of uh, hercules moment but I, I think kind of what you're alluding to was um where the team changed and you know kicked into gear and what was you know, what sparked that? I think it, if we wind back the clock, it comes down to the fact that we hadn't had that much time together as a team. You know, we literally, we had a month or two max prior to the start of the race. Um, you know, when when you're a team that's going to spend, you know, vast amount of times together, you, you've got to know each other inside out. You've got to gel. You've got to understand, you know, each other and be able to live in that scenario. And make a boat go fast. So I think that was where we, we lacked the time, the, the experience. And as a result of that, we spent the first few months of the race, the first what, four or five legs, still bedding in, you know, still going through all those teething problems that a team will experience from get go. And so it, it was in Auckland where we'd really hit rock bottom. The boat had crossed the line last in that that leg and and that was where Anna Marika who'd always been there but kind of more in the background and just sort of helping us as we needed and trying to, to develop the team as we went but I think that was the the moment where we were like something has to change in you know what can we do and whether that meant um, you know how we sell the boat um, our communication and I think the fact we'd also been changing a few crew members. So again, that wasn't helping with the whole bedding down of a team. And I think the one sort of big thing that came out of working with Anna Marika in, in Auckland was really digging down into each other's profiles and into communication skills. And not so much about our needs, you know, your personal style. It was more about learning about the other people in the team and that, that was a real eye-opener to me because it, it highlighted the fact that you know there were some people that were very information heavy and needed information to be able to operate and more so probably towards the cup America's cup teams that are just used to having that you know wash and wash of performance data fired at them whereas um, the more experienced as it happens, tended to be the more sort of, you know, sedate, uh, include, um, what's the word, you know, keep themselves to themselves. And so it was a real sort of 
understanding of each other's needs and how to get the best out of everyone and, and how that, you know, would interact with each other. And so we set ourselves some very basic uh, key guidelines, you know, performance of the boat, positivity, you know, very basic and almost just sort of stripped everything bare and started started fresh. And it yeah, it, it was a real sort of eye opening just to have that sort of, OK, you know, this is how we need to change. And and just having that understanding was a, a huge, a huge help. And I think the results spoke for themselves after that. I think a lot of the sailors that were on your team, and possibly yourself, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the sailors that have come up through Olympic sailing will have been quite used to have being poked and prodded by sports psychologists at an early age and all the way through their career. Um, it's interesting hearing different members of Team Brunel talk about it and hearing the effect that it had and everyone sort of talks about it in a kind of way that's like wow you know i'm still i'm still sort of working out this puzzle and it's wow it's really interesting to sort of stand back and and see how how well all the pieces sort of fit together so what do you what would you take from it and onto another team either in the next ocean race or in whatever else you do you know are you going to be the person go trust me look we've got to approach it in this way it's really worked um I think definitely having that that person who can be that onlooker. They're not engaged in the team in that emotional sense. You know, they're not seeing it at at the heart of the action. But what someone like Anna Marika did, and I see the benefit of this for any future teams, is she could look look at it from an outsider's perspective. She would take all of our you know, downloads as soon as we get off the boat. Um, and then she can create a picture of what was going on on board just based on all of those um, feedback from all of the crew members and then be able to sort of go to the to the people that so needed a little nudge or uh, a lift up or, you know, trying to work out how to resolve a, a conflict potentially with another crew member. And so it was really, you know, she would just sort of, you know, do a little bit of under the radar manipulation and then bring us all back together. And I think just the fact that she sat outside the team, she can talk about things and put them out in the open and encourage us to talk about them and get it out in the air. And how are we going to deal with this in the future? And I think just having that, um, A, she has the knowledge of understanding how team dynamics work, you know, and how to get the best out of people. Um, and the fact that she's not emotionally attached in, in that team, you know, enabled it to be a much more open conversation. And I think the benefits from that are huge. And especially for a team where there's, you know, there's nine people, you know, all very different people, um, very different personalities. And, and, you know, trying to mould that into a high performance team is obviously quite a skill. So I've you know, I couldn't recommend highly enough the benefits of having that that coach or, you know, sports psychologist in a, in a team environment. And I think it's been proved across the board in any top sports, you know, whether that's hockey, football, rugby, you know, it's it, the, the, the benefits are there to be had. It, it's something I think that as viewers of the race, as fans of the race, we never really think about enough 
in as much as, you know, having that person outside the team is so valuable because, of course, if you, <laughs> if you, I'll pick on you, but it could be anybody, tell another crew member what you're really thinking about the way that they just did that, you're then stuck with that person uh, possibly sharing the same bunk, possibly on the same watch with them for days, weeks, you know, a month. Um, just as a sort of a sub-question, and of course, please do not give me an example unless you really feel like you need to, but how long does a grudge last on an ocean race team? You know, if somebody oh does God. something, loses their temper, breaks something, in some way annoys another person, what's the typical length of time? Well, difficult question because I, if um, if I look back to Brunel, I would say I, I don't have any grudges because we formed into a team and whether we just naturally worked our way out with the people that we ended up with. Yeah. I mean, everybody had their traits, but there was certainly no grudge. Now, if I wind back to SCA where we didn't have that uh, team dynamics atmosphere, that was a very different environment, you know, and I think the way that we had been, selected the way we were trained it didn't create an atmosphere of trust and respect and it you know and and therefore i and don't think the team ever reached its full potential we and so yeah i'm sure there's a lot of excess baggage left over from that campaign i mean <laughs> i say that in in a good way because it was great what we did and the opportunity but knowing what I know now and you know the feelings the emotional sort of turmoil that me and I'm sure many of the other team members were going through in that particular campaign you could see you know and especially perhaps with a, a team full of girls who have been you know thrown into that environment and are all desperate to to be the best they can but we never were sort of coached into being the best team that we can. And so, yeah, it's been a, a great experience to have been exposed to that with Brunel and yeah, something that I will definitely use in the future. Uh, uh, yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people talk about the people that were in team SEA talk about just being shy of that click moment where all that skill that was in that room blended together really nicely but of course that team did an awful lot not only on paper in terms of it's an all-female team and we haven't seen many of those but in terms of the magenta project uh, as well and it's interesting hearing you talk about that satellite view and that someone who's kind of connected but not inside the team and then obviously your work with the magenta project it feels to me like there's quite a similarity there about one of the things that the Magenta Project offers, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, it's your project, is that, you know, the sort of aspiring young female sailors have someone that they can turn to who's not on the boat that they're sailing on, probably, but someone that they can say, look, I've got this problem, I've hit this barrier, I I'm finding this difficult, and there's a mentorship and there's kind of information kind of kind of coming round. So let me ask you a little bit about that. You know, it grew out of Team SCA because there was so much good momentum with that campaign in terms of females in sport. Um, 
with all your work that you do with the Magenta Project, and I've met some of the sailors that go through it, and there have been many, and everybody talks about it very highly. Do you find the progress that has been made, do you find that gives you energy and enthusiasm to keep going? Or do you find the frustration of the amount of time that it's taking grinds you down? Uh, definitely the former in terms of the enthusiasm and the energy that the, the mentees have as a group is you just can't get enough of it. And if you're ever having a bad day, then you tune into a, a mentees get together and it's like, woo, <laughs> you're on cloud nine again. Um, I, no, I think it's it's been a fantastic sort of uh, invention, if you like, to have this mentorship in sailing, even though it's a, a shoreside, you know, dry program. Um, even more fantastic, the fact with different countries in lockdown and, and suffering through the pandemic is that the program has kept running you know it's all been done virtually and and the main aim is to to match up aspiring female sailors with a mentor and that can be a male or female mentor someone who's an industry professional um and it's it's spread globally so we have a lot in the uk the us uh, australia new zealand and now spreading across europe and south america and it it really has been fantastic and i think what lockdown taught us was it's not just about the mentor and the mentee and you know that relationship that gets built it was also about the network of of mentees meeting each other and there was a great quote from one of the girls saying oh my gosh you know I never knew that there were other girls with the same goal out there and this is just amazing to have access to this group in one in one area and that I think that's the most sort of energizing thing is to see the girls helping each other. Um, they're all sort of building off each other's ideas. You know, they're collaborating together to do little projects. So it really has been a, a great, a great sort of success. And yeah, over the three years now that it's been running, that we're sort of just over a hundred girls that have been through the program. And yeah, some of them we've gone on to see some great things. And obviously we're in a bit of a holding pattern now and trying to use the time to work on all these secondary skills. And actually one of the things um, planned for the group is to work of one of these profiling and communication skills so that they've had experience, you know, the type of thing that Anna Marika or a sports psychologist would bring to a team um, and yeah, and just making the use of the time by bringing in experts on particular topics of interest to the group. Um, so yeah, it, it really is fantastic to see the energy and yeah, and who knows where they'll go in the future. And how, how have things, um, how have things changed or, or, or at least let's go back to the beginning. I mean, what did you find back in 2001 with Amma Sports 2, an all-female team in a male-dominated lineup in a male-dominated sport, um, how did you find things then being the females in terms of how were you treated compared to how you might be treated now? Mm. There's no denying that Amma Sports was definitely a token team, for sure. You know, it was a it was there for media purposes. 
we were part of a two boat campaign and we were sharing budget shore team you know you name it we had the the boat that grant dalton didn't want um but i mean aside from that you know that was my dream was to do that race and i'm sure for for all of the other girls you know they were grateful for that opportunity and some of them had come from the ef campaign so it wasn't their first trip around the world but I, I think the crying message that came out of that campaign was, you know, we need to be taken seriously. You know, we're not here as a token element. You know, we there's no reason why we can't perform if given the opportunity and 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 build the experience. And I, I think <clears throat> what we're seeing now over time, throughout, you know the culture in, in business and, you know, across the world, not just in, in sport, is that people are finally seeing that the benefits of diversity and what it can bring to a business, you know, in terms of uh, innovation, in terms of, you know, um, ideas and, and, you know, at the end, revenue and profits and, and all those good stuff. And I think how that needs to trickle down into sport is is really seeing the benefit of diversity and what that can bring to a team and I, I think we're still not quite there because um although the rules have come in now for for uh, you know this incentive for having women on board and now for the the next race again we've got uh you know female members of the team as part of the the crew rule but i, I think it, until we get over this concept of of diversity being tolerated rather than and as opposed to being valued there's a huge difference and I, I think you could look at back at the teams that competed in the 1718 race and say that many of those women you know they were there as part of the the vanity metrics of you know you have to have two women on your team or, or that's the incentive you know how many of those women were actually valued for their skill set as opposed to we need to tolerate these women because you know we have to take them um but and again it's a bit of catch-22 because the the fish the the pool in which to fish in for female talent is is not you know not big enough or not as big as we'd like to see it and so building that critical mass of a female talent and whether that's skills you know whether that's experience and then having that that uh, choice of personalities and characters that are going to fit with your team that you're putting together you know we're still we're still building still building but i think at least the steps are being taken in the right direction and hopefully you know the cultures within the teams will change i mean i think we're starting to see that now um you know it's great seeing so many women compete in the vendee race and yeah i mean i hope that we start to see a more, uh, yeah, a more integrated and more culturally open teams in in the next race. I I remember Annie Lush, who um, I got a chance to talk to with this series, and um, I've had uh, you know I, I I've sailed with Annie a couple of times, and I know she works you know she works very hard with the Magenta Project as well, and you know she was when I was talking to her about 
oh, you know, what about the physicality difference between male and female? You know, how, how you know, what advice would you give there? And her response was just, well, no one's picking KP because of his physical prowess. They're picking him because of his skill in other areas. And I th thought that was a very good point. Um, you know, as a final little thing, what, what would you, now that you're running the Magenta Project, now that you are part of this scheme that's mentoring and advising so many young sailors, uh, female sailors who are trying to be chosen because of their skill and their passion, what should it have been some, something that someone said to you when you were 21, 22, 23? What would, the, would have been the piece of advice that would have brought about the success that you've had, but maybe brought it about sooner? Yeah, it's pretty hard to answer that in <laughs> in a one hit answer. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess if I had to say one thing, it would have to be to be to believe in yourself. It, it it's very it can be quite daunting. Uh, often being the only girl in a team, it can be sort of. Uh, you know, because you immediately feel like you're the alien amongst the group, and 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 that adds a lot of pressure. You know, you do something wrong, and then you feel like, oh god, you know, the girl did it again. Um, so I I feel like I, I'm not sure that that's the question, but I, I I think believing in yourself is one. But wholeheartedly, I believe that the culture has to change. You know, it's not us that has to change. It's the culture and then creating this this uh, unconscious bias that exists naturally just because it has been a male-dominated environment for so long and, and just creating this culture, understanding the values and the benefits that diversity can bring. Um, and, yeah, we we then down to, as Annie said, you're, you're picking on skill, you're picking on character, you're picking on experience. And gender doesn't come into that discussion. That's the world that I hope we're going towards. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I hope that we're making some steps there. I know that you are making some, some, you know, dragging us all in the way that we should be going, not least because of what you're doing with the Magenta Project, but also with everything that you've been doing with the Ocean Race and beyond with the America's Cup and the TP52 and all of your sailing. Any young teenager now male or female that has a poster on their wall from the last edition of the ocean race those sailors that they'll be looking up to thinking maybe one day i'm going to be one of them some of them are going to be male some of them are going to be female so hopefully horizons have been broadened um and certainly in this conversation as well it's been really fascinating speaking to you not least about the females in sport but also about the uh the world of trying to look after a uh, a boat when your other eight teammates are desperately trying to break it as fast as they can by pushing it through the Southern Ocean. So, uh, Abby, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep an eye open on our social media channels where we'll be announcing our future guests and you can submit the questions that you want to get answers to. If you enjoyed this, then subscribe for many more and we'll see you in the future.